If you want to uh, dust off the New Testament in your Bibles and find your place in Philippians, we wrapped up our study through uh, the book of Nehemiah last week. We'll be uh, moving into our study of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi this morning. We're going to be studying uh, the first 11 verses of this letter. And uh, to sort of uh, get a picture of, of what the, the purpose of this letter is, what's, what's happening in this letter, I want us to think for just a moment, if, you're, uh, if you've spent much time at all with us over the last couple of years, you've probably, hopefully, you've heard me or maybe someone else say uh, something along the lines of, of we want to keep the main thing the main thing, right? Or the importance of keeping the main thing the main thing. And what we mean by that is that, that we're uh, trying to be constantly aware of the, the temptation that, that is within us to make all of this about something other than Jesus, right? To make all of this about something other than His Word, to make it about our preferences, to make it about our comfort, uh, to make it about uh, preserving some sort of idea uh, that we have, and, and just, just, make, just make the main thing the main thing, right? It's something that every church, not just this church, but every church must constantly be reminding itself of the significance. But it's not easy, right? It's not easy for us to keep the main thing the main thing. It's not easy for us to get ourselves out of the way so Jesus can take center stage, right? When we think about what we're doing in the church or why we're doing church, man, if we're just honest with ourselves, so many times we're just thinking about us, right? How does it benefit me? How does it make me look? You know, what, what sort of standing does it give me? But the constant challenge that we face is just to keep the gospel the gospel, Right? And just make the gospel, make the good news of Jesus the primary emphasis of what we're doing. And that's, that's how we think about this thing corporately. But, but this happens personally as well. Right? It happens in, in, in our life as we seek to be Christ followers. It's not easy to be a Christian today, is it? I'm not talking about easy to become a Christian. I'm talking about uh, to live a life that is consistent with what Scripture describes of a disciple of Jesus. It's not easy, man. There are all kinds of temptations. There are all kinds of distractions out there, not to mention all of the distractions that are in here, right? And so we're facing distractions in here. We're facing distractions out there. The world has all of these things that just entice us and just, man, even if it's just ever so slightly at first, just get our eyes off of the main thing. And so then when that happens personally, what does it do? It affects us corporately. And all of this, this opposition that we face to be distracted from the main thing in our personal lives and the, in the corporate life of the church, it's exactly why Paul's letter to the Philippians is so relevant for us today. Now, very big picture, just simply put, this is a thank you letter from Paul to the church in Philippi. But it's not just a thank you letter. It's not simply a thank you letter, if you will. What's happened, the occasion for writing here is this guy by the name of Ephroditus. He has brought to Paul in a Roman prison a gift from the church in Philippi. This isn't an odd occasion. The Philippians have been very faithful 
to support Paul financially in his ministry. They've been very faithful to pray for Paul in his ministry. That comes out as we study this book. You'll see it over and over and over again how faithful this church has been to partner with Paul in the sharing of the good news to the ends of the known earth. And so Ephroditus has brought this gift. And so Paul is, the, uh, the occasion of his writing is to send thanks to the Christians in Philippi for this gift that they have, that they have sent. But as this letter plays out, as we consider it in its entirety, over the next 12 weeks or so, what you're going to find is that Paul's overarching concern is not how thankful he is for the financial and prayer support of the Philippians, though he is very thankful for that support. His overarching concern is the gospel. In fact, even though Philippians is not the largest letter by any means uh, that Paul wrote, uh, per 100 words that Paul writes, he uses the word gospel more in this letter than he does any other letter. So per capita, if you will, he, he references the gospel more in this letter than any other letter to any other church. And on top of that, you're going to see even this morning as we consider this greeting, these first 11 verses, that Paul is just radiating this contagious joy. And so even though he's writing from a Roman prison, he can say, listen, Philippian Christians, I am rejoicing and so you too ought to rejoice. Even in these circumstances I rejoice. So you and your circumstances ought to rejoice. And so what Paul is doing right out of the gate, right? even, be, even before we read the first word here, and we're just understanding the context of his writing, is he is reminding us that ultimate joy is not derived from our comfortable circumstances. But living joy, actual joy, true joy, ultimate joy is derived from a living and vibrant communion with Christ Jesus. And that's the opposite of what the world tells us, isn't it? The world tells us if you improve your circumstances, you'll have more joy. If you quit your job, you'll have more joy. If you, if you buy this thing, you'll have more joy. If you go to this place, you'll have more joy. Man, if, you're, if your kids were just a little bit better behaved, you'll have more joy. That may, that may actually be true to some extent. But you get what I'm saying, right? The world is just telling us that constantly, if you just do this or do that or do this or do that, then you'll have more joy. And what Paul's saying is it doesn't matter if you do this or if you do that. It doesn't matter if you're in health or if you're, uh, if you're in wealth or if you're in poverty or sickness. It doesn't matter if you're in a Roman prison. If you want to have true and lasting joy, you've got to be in Christ. And so stop looking to your job for joy. Stop looking to your spouse for joy. Stop looking to your children for joy and look to Christ for joy. Because Paul doesn't say, look at my house and have joy. He doesn't say, look at my family and have joy. He doesn't, he doesn't say, look at my bank account and have joy. He says, no, look at Jesus and rejoice with me. And so maybe this morning you just showed up and you're just looking for the meaning and the purpose of life. You're just trying to figure it out. What's this all about? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? Well, look, I think the Paul's letter to the Philippians can help with that. Paul loves the church in Philippi. And I mean, it just, that love just radiates through this entire letter. He refers to it in chapter 4 as his joy and crown. 
But it's not all just this fairy tale with the Philippians either. In fact, right after he calls the church his joy and crown, he also acknowledges that there is some disunity that exists in the body. And so Paul is commending them for all of the good work that they have done, all of the good work that they are doing, and all of the good work that they aspire to do. But at the same time, he's not saying just forget about all the problems, just sweep all of the problems under the rug. Because even though at this moment, it seems like whatever is causing this disunity in the, in the body of Christ, right, and the fellowship of the Philippian church, it seems, it seems that to the Philippians it's a rather small thing, Right? Maybe it's just, oh, well, you know, those people are just being those people. You know how they are, right? It just seems small, but what Paul is saying, listen, this will threaten your partnership in the gospel. This will threaten your joy. This will threaten the advancement of the gospel. And so though he is joyous, he is thankful for them, we're also going to see him instruct them on how they can continue to partner together for the sake of the gospel and all of the benefits that will come from that. That's what this letter is really about. Now, before we read, I also want to mention there are so many Christians that find their life verses in this book. And there are some really great verses in this book. Maybe your life verse or your favorite verse is in this book. Millennials and Gen Zers would say there's so many tweetable passages in this book. right? You can put it on Facebook or whatever. And that's fine. I'm not telling you not to put the verses of Scripture on social media. But what happens sometimes is when we take Philippians, we just take this bits and pieces approach. There's a really good verse here and there's a really good verse here. This is my favorite verse and this is a good verse. And what happens when we take that bits and pieces approach is we actually miss the overarching goal of what Paul is doing in the letter. And so we're going to look at some of those really good verses. Maybe, again, your life verses in this, in this book, we're going to look at it. We'll dive into it. But what we have to do is be careful not to miss the profound nature of this entire letter. Right? We don't want to just jump around and hit the popular verses, those uh, buzz verses, if you will. Now, we don't have time to go into it in great detail uh, this morning or in this series, but if you really, if you really want to get the, the backstory, if you will, of the Philippian church, then you can, uh, you can read Acts 16 really on the, all the way up into uh, Acts chapter 18, and you get the backstory of how this uh, Philippian church came to be. Of course, Paul is the church planter of the church in Philippi. It was the first church that he planted on European soil. And get this, as you read the backstory you'll find that this church really began, uh, it was, it was, there were really three people who were incredibly motivational in the forming and the planting and the establishment and the continuation of this church. You'll find a rich Asian woman by the name of Lydia. You'll find uh, apparently a, a poor native slave girl, a Greek slave girl, and this blue-collar Roman jailer. That's who, that's who helps Paul plant the Philippian church. A rich Asian woman, a poor Greek slave girl, and a Roman jailer. What do they have in common? Well, absolutely nothing except the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are their qualifications? They don't have any except the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so... All of this is just a reminder, even as we consider the history of the Philippian church, that as we gather together, even this morning, we may have other things in common, but the most important thing that we have in common is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We may have certain gifts and qualifications, but the most important qualification that we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, man, when God is calling you to serve, when He is calling you to do something in the church for for the sake of the gospel, if He's calling you to the mission field or just kids' ministry, think about Lydia, the slave girl, and the Roman jailer. Because they don't have any more qualifications than you have. And they didn't have anything anything more in common with each other than you may have with the people that God is calling you to serve but they've got the gospel. And so the church in Philippi begins. And and we'll see, Paul understood that the gospel was for all people. He understands that it's for all nations. And so when he planted churches, he was planting diverse churches that would understand the value of partnering together to advance the gospel. And according to the way Paul describes the Philippians, the Philippians probably understand that better than anyone. They understand the value of cooperating together to advance the gospel. And again, that's a major theme of this book. And so I invite you to join with me in reading Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making request with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is, meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, watch inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record. How greatly I long after you and in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve the things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Christ Jesus unto the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we indeed confess yet again, that this is Your Word, infallible and errant and inspired, that it is profitable for everything that we could possibly need. And so now, Lord, as we consider just Paul's greeting to the church in Philippi, Lord, would You cut us to the quick? Would You challenge us in the areas where we have become complacent and lethargic? And yet, Lord, would You encourage us in the areas where we have abandoned the gospel in the pursuit of other things in this world that we may be reminded that there is nothing in this world, there's nothing in our homes, there's nothing in our workplaces that can bring us joy. There is only one place we can find ultimate joy, and it's in the gospel of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And so remind us of that this morning and equip us and challenge us to leave this place ready to partner together for the sake of gospel advancement. We ask all of this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. So as we start to really dive into the depths of this passage, you see right out of the gate in verse 1, right? Paul is introducing himself and Timothy. Now, if you go back and you look at that backstory, 
of the Philippian church, you'll learn that Timothy was really instrumental in the planting of the Philippian church, right? He was the one that was, was helping Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer. He's the one that's helping them get things going, right? He's giving them instruction. He's, he's giving them insight. He's, he's helping them do evangelism, right? He's teaching the Word of God. And so he's really helping this church plant get off the ground. And so they're not only incredibly familiar with him, but they would also been incredibly appreciative of him. Now, what I really want to point out here in this first verse is if you actually, if you remember back when we studied the book of Colossians, Paul did uh, almost the exact same thing. In fact, it was the exact same thing in his greeting to the Colossians. And we talked about it then, so I won't spend a ton of time here, but it is an incredibly important reminder. And I think it's why Paul so often includes it in his greeting. But notice what he says In Christ at Philippi. Right, he's writing to the saints. When Paul's writing to the saints, what is he doing? He's writing to the church, right? He's writing to Christians in that particular community, in that particular church. In this case, most likely in Lydia's house is where this church is meeting. And so he's writing to the saints that are in Christ at Philippi. Why does he do this? Why does he use this very specific terminology? Because he doesn't want anyone to mistake their geographical location with their spiritual identity. They're not Philippians first, they're Christians first. Right? This goes back to what they have in common, isn't it? They're in Christ, that's why they partner together. They're not partnering together because they all happen to live in Philippi. That's not the primary reason for their partnership. Right? It's not pride for city. They've joined together because they are in Christ at Philippi. Now this is a very important message for those who may be deceived by an Americanized gospel. It may seem like splitting hairs, but I think it will help you get the point. We shouldn't refer to ourselves as American Christians because it conflates our identity as Americans with our identity as Christians, and they are not equal or the same. Rather, we're actually Christians in America, aren't we? We're in Christ in America. We talked about this on Wednesday night. Ultimately, as Christians, we're not a part of any democracy. We're part of a monarchy. We have one king. We have one nation, right? One nation made up of every tribe, every tongue, every people group that one day will fall down and worship our King in His presence. That's who we are. Now, because we're Americans, we have a lot in common. But if all we do is rely on our Americanism, if you will, to partner together, you know what our partnerships will do? They'll fail. Because as great as our country is, there is no spiritual authority in our country. It's not what bonds us together in spirit and in truth. This is truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is true. And so before we're anything else, we're Christians. And so we can't be, you can't be an American, you can't be a Mexican, you can't be a Brazilian, you can't be a Peruvian or anything else before Christ. If you're in Christ, that's who you are. And so even though we're in America, man, we have a unity with Christians in India. Because we're in Christ. We're separated geographically, but we're in Christ. And so that's where our identity lies. And that's what Paul is setting the stage for here. Now you also see that he addresses bishops, or we might also call this overseers or elders. Again, those terms are used interchangeably, and deacons here. But uh, this is more of a form of respect 
a sort of respectful acknowledgement of those leaders in this letter because we'll see the content of this letter is not just addressed to the leaders of the church. It's addressed to the entire body of the church. Now as we come down to verse 2 here, Paul continues what is a pretty typical greeting for him. Uh, but again, I don't want us to neglect the theological truth that's encompassed here. Notice Paul lists grace before peace. That's very intentional. The reason he talks about grace before peace is because peace is just a byproduct of grace. Again, an incredibly important lesson for us to learn. The point is, if you are in Christ, then you have received grace. Right? They haven't received grace because they're in Philippi. They've received grace because they're in Christ. And if they, have, if they are in Christ, then they have received grace. And as a recipient of grace, they can experience peace. Now let's think about this for just a moment. If you're in Christ, you're a recipient of grace, and therefore you can have peace. You won't have peace just because you're in Locust Grove Baptist Church. You won't have peace just because you're in a geographical location or because you're in a particular relationship with another person. The only way you will find peace is to be in Christ as a recipient of grace. And again, we could spend so much time, probably a whole message this morning, talking about all of the ways the world tempts us to find peace. And you know what it is. You know how it goes because we're all guilty of pursuing those things to find peace. Right? Going back to the same things I said a minute ago. Man, if I could just find a better job, I would have more peace. If I could just find a better relationship, I would have more peace. More friends, I would have more peace. More money, I would have more peace. No, the gospel tells us none of those things will ultimately bring you peace. If you want peace, you need grace. If you want grace, you need Jesus. And so right now, if you don't have peace in your life, stop blaming it on everyone else or everything else. Stop blaming it on the circumstances, on the situations on how that person treated you on Wednesday morning at work, you say, well, you don't know how hateful they were. I'm telling you right now, if you are lacking peace in your life, then there's a good chance you're lacking an understanding of God's grace in your life. And so preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the grace that has been extended to you that only Jesus can extend to you. If peace is a byproduct of grace, your kids can't show you that kind of grace. Your spouse can't show you that kind of grace. Your boss can't show you that kind of grace. Your bank account can't show you that kind of grace. Man, only Jesus can show you the kind of grace that will bring a, a suitable, a lasting, and overwhelming sense of peace in your life. And so it's out of this position, out of this blessing, that we are called to live mission-oriented lives of holiness. And what Paul is saying to the Philippians, those mission-oriented lives of holiness that's a result of the peace that you have received through the grace of Jesus Christ, that's experienced, that's lived out through partnering together. And so what we see here are really the products of partnership in this greeting. As Paul's introducing the letter, he's just giving the Philippians some of the, the products of their partnership together because of the grace and peace that's been extended to them through Jesus. And so first in verses 3 through 5, we see the product of joy as a result of their partnership. Verse 3, very quickly here, uh, even though there was disunity cropping up in the church, right? We'll see that. Paul never wavers in his thankfulness, right? 
There is no indication that Paul has ever doubted or ever questioned his thankfulness for the church. Verse 4, he was so unwavering in his thankfulness that he was able to make, look at that, every single prayer he says that I make for you, I make with joy. That's incredible, isn't it? It's really hard to pray for somebody every time and make that prayer with joy, isn't it? Sometimes I pray with vengeance. (laughs) With anger, I'm looking for retribution. Paul says, no, I'm making every prayer that I make for you with joy. Even if there is disunity. Even if there is some of you who have fallen out of line, man, I am still praying with you, praying for you with joy. Because I know that we're partakers of the same grace. And I know that we're experiencing the same peace. And I know that we're partnering together to advance the same gospel. But then as we come to verse 5, we learn why Paul is able to do this, right? He's confident because of their fellowship. We might also say instead of fellowship, we might say participation in the gospel or partnership in the gospel. It all means the same thing. He's confident because he knows they're committed to work together to advance the gospel. So we have what we have now is an introduction to two of the major themes in this letter, uh, fellowship or, or partnership and joy. These two things, uh, what we're seeing and what we'll understand more deeply as this letter progresses is that joy amongst the saints is inextricably linked to partnership amongst the saints. If you want to have a church filled with joy, if you want to be saints in the church, if you want to be saints at Locust Grove filled with joy, be saints who are marked by our partnership in the gospel. There's got to be partnership amongst the saints if there's going to be joy amongst the saints. And so again, uh, let's just make sure that we're grounded in the context here. Remember, Paul is is writing this letter. He's writing it as a sign of gratitude, at least in part, for the Philippians' partnership with him in advancing the gospel. And so think about this for just a moment. This means that the gospel was not only the environment of their fellowship... Right? It's the environment in which they're partnering together. They're partnering together in the gospel. But get this. It's also the goal of their partnership. What a radical idea, right? That we wouldn't just partner together in the gospel, that we'd partner together for the sake of the gospel. And sometimes we get misaligned. We say, okay, we'll partner together in the gospel for the sake of ourselves. We'll partner together in the gospel so long as we're making ourselves comfortable. We'll partner together in the gospel so long as we're doing what we want to do, when we want to do it, and how we're going to do it. Our goal is ultimately our comfort and our present and uh, what, what seems tangible reward. But no, the church in Philippi, they're partnering together in the environment of the gospel, but their goal is that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth, whether it means imprisonment, whether it means persecution, or whether it means being martyred for the sake of the gospel. Now again, I talked about how many times Paul mentions the gospel in this letter. It's nine times, in fact, and so he's serious about the gospel. Here's the big point that we get here, church. We are here for the sake of gospel promotion. Preacher's wife's listening. I'm going to say it again. We are here, like we as in me and you, us, right now at Locust Grove. We are here for the sake of promoting the gospel. That's why you're here. If you're a Christian, that's why you ought to be here. Not for me to give you 12 steps to a happier life right now. Not for me to preach a series on how you can live your best life now. 
but for us to get in God's Word, figure out how we can experience the peace that is offered to us through, the, through God's Son, Jesus, as it's communicated to us in His Word, and how we can partner together to make sure that every tribe, every tongue, and every nation hears this gospel. And so we partner in the gospel, and we partner for the sake of the gospel. It's why we're here. But second, we come to verses 6 and 7. We see another product, not just joy now, but confidence. Confidence is a product of partnership. Look at verse 6. Of course, we, we can't skip over the fact that the good work that was happening among them, it wasn't the work of their own efforts, right? It's not the, the reason things are going so good in Philippi isn't because Paul is an incredible communicator. No, the point that's being made here is that this is the Lord's work. What Paul wants the church in Philippi to know is that God started this work in you. Not Paul started this work in you. Not Timothy started this work in you. But God started this work in you. And so you can have confidence that He will bring it to completion. Man, that's a really encouraging confidence, isn't it? I mean, as we apply this to all believers, right? As we apply this right here. If God started a work in this community and we are consistent to partner together in the gospel for the sake of the gospel, we can be confident that the work that the Lord started, He will bring to completion at the day of the Lord. And so it's incredibly encouraging what we see here, this confidence that we can have. Paul is, is balancing this tension between human agency and divine initiative. Yes, the Philippians had a partnership with Paul. It required human agency for them to have that partnership. But it was actually God who was working out that partnership. It was God who was leading them to give. It was God who was using the money, who was using the prayers to advance the gospel through Paul. Now we must also consider for a moment what this good work is. Now, it's interesting, the immediate context would suggest that Paul is speaking of the good work in the Philippian church as that of financial, the financial support that he was receiving from the church. Now, while I do believe that's part of the equation here, he's definitely referencing the financial help that he's getting from the church. I don't think that's all Paul is speaking about. I think he's speaking more broadly here about God's grace because I think that's a consistent theme, not just in this introduction, but through the whole letter. What Paul is really thanking them, what Paul is really thanking God for, this good work that he's describing is how, how God is working out his grace in the lives of the Philippians. And because God is working out his grace in their lives, it's resulting in their generosity. Do you see that? So he's not merely just sending them a thank you letter from Walmart, right? It's not just a Hallmark thank you letter saying, hey, thanks for the check, guys. I appreciate you. No, what he's really doing is he's thinking, he's praying and he's thinking before them. He's thanking God for how God is working His grace out in their lives. And he's saying a byproduct of that grace is the fact that you have supported me financially. And so while I'm thankful for the money, I'm even more thankful of how I'm seeing God's grace at work in your life. That's what, that's what Paul's talking about. And so since, since Paul spoke of the work beginning and ending, it's unlikely that, that he had only their initial salvation experience in mind or even just a one-time financial gift. I think he had in mind this ongoing process of Christian growth. Again, we'll see that as this uh, letter plays out. You'll see this process of what we call sanctification in chapter 2, especially in chapter 3. We'll dive into the depths of salvation and sanctification and glorification. All of these things, all of these words that may be uncommon to you right now, but it's exactly what Paul's talking 
talking about the process of a Christian life that's just a result of God's grace being extended towards us. And so since God began a work of Christian growth, evidenced by their giving, He would complete that growth. That's the promise that Paul is holding on to. That's the confidence that the Philippians have. God began growing. Uh, He began leading you to grow. He began uh, you growing in grace. And so guess what? He will continue that work. He will bring that work to completion. And because of that, you see, they have no fear of judgment on that final day, do they? It's not that the Philippians will avoid judgment because they worked so hard. It's not that they finally would raise enough money for Paul that God would cut them some slack on the last day. No, what... What, uh, what Paul is saying is that on the last day you can have confidence that you will avoid the wrath and the judgment of God not because of what you've done but because of what God has done through you as a result of His grace. And so because of His grace, church, we can have confidence that the Lord will use us for His purposes that He'll use us right now, that He will use us in this community, in this season, in this time, in this context, and that we can have confidence that one day He will save us from His wrath when He returns. That's the confidence that His grace gives us. Verse 7, Paul gives further evidence for why he has this confidence, right? He's sharing some of the ways that he's witnessed the outworking of God's grace in the church, right? He's seen the evidence of grace in their defense and in their confirmation of the gospel, You know, I think this begs the question. Are people seeing the outworkings of God's grace in your life? Just think about that for a moment. The people you'll have lunch with this afternoon, the people you went to work with on Friday, did they see the outworkings of God's grace in your life? Would it be obvious to them? And sometimes we take this for granted, but what about brothers and sisters in this church? Do they see the outworking of God's grace in your life? Man, when they look at you, do they say, man, that's, that's what it looks like for God's grace to be working in someone's life. And I don't want to be them, but I want God's grace working through me like it's working through them. And so what do your brothers and sisters in Christ see in you when they see you? It's really sad, isn't it, that too many times our relationships in the church are defined by anything but grace. And people see everything but grace in us. And so what are people seeing when they see you? Verses 8 and 9, we see this third product of partnering together, and that is love. There's joy as a product of their partnership. Confidence is a product of their partnership. And now love is a product of their partnership. Look at verse 8. Paul is describing first his love for the church. Right? He deeply longs for them. Literally saying with this deep internal affection of Jesus. He says, man, I, learn, I long for you with the deepest, most internal affection for Jesus that you could possibly imagine. Now this is meant to encourage the church, right? Because of what their partnership has produced. But I think it also serves as a challenge to the church. Because Paul is recognizing the possible threat of division. And so what does he want to do? He wants to encourage love in the church. Again, I ask the question, what does someone see in you in the church when they see you? Do they see God's grace? But what do you feel when you look at your fellow church members? Do you feel what Paul feels for the Philippian church? Do you love them in spite of all their faults? 
Do you long for them with the affection of Jesus? Do you long to see them live in God's grace just as much as you long to see yourself live in God's grace? Then verse 9, look, the challenge comes more into view. Paul's praying for their love to abound more and more as they grow in judgment. We might also say as they grow in discernment, right? It's not judging one another, it's discernment. Judging what's right, judging what's wrong, discerning what's good, discerning what's great. See, Paul's prayer for their love to keep growing or to abound helps us see that our love should not be a static love. Now, while Paul recognizes that love is present in their lives, he, right, he's already thanked them for their partnership, and he later thanks them for their gift, but he's praying that their love would increase. He's not just praying, man, I hope, I hope we can just keep the status quo, guys. I hope you just keep doing what you're doing. Nothing more, nothing less. Man, you just get in a rut and you ride that thing all the way to the end. No. No, what Paul is saying is, man, I've already seen some really good stuff and I'm, I'm praying that we would see more great stuff as a result of God's grace working in you and through you. And so what we're learning is that this biblical love is a sacrificial love, right? It's that Greek word agape. That we would have a sacrificial love of course for Christ, a sacrificial love for the church, a sacrificial love for one another, right? It, it involves action. 1 John chapter 3, what, what is John writing about over there? He's writing about love with action. It's interesting, Paul doesn't specify the object of their love, which I believe is intentional because, because Paul is really praying for this holistic growth, right? I mean, think about this for just a second. Who are we called to love as believers? like everybody, right? I mean, what, is, what does the Bible tell Who does the Bible tell us to love as believers? Our neighbor, right? We're supposed to love the least of these. We're supposed to love our enemies. And we're supposed to love one another. That pretty much covers everybody, doesn't it? And so if, if one particular type of view, uh, love is in view here, it probably is love for one another in the church because uh, it's, it's so important for the watching world to see. But I think... Paul is sort of non-specific here for a reason. He wants their love across the board to increase. Right? Jesus said that they will know we are His disciples by how we do what? We love one another. John writes that this is one of the ways that, that we know we have uh, passed from death to life. Right? He says that we love our brothers. That's how we know that we have passed from death to life. And so do you love your brothers and sisters? It's a mark of a Christian. It's essential for unity. It's a, it's a powerful witness to a watching world. Now notice that Paul is rooting love in something very important. Don't miss this. He's rooting this love in the knowledge of God. Again, this is the only way that their love will increase is if it's rooted in the knowledge of God. If we don't have the knowledge of God, how can we know how to love appropriately? Listen, church, we learn from Christ what it means to serve, what it means to forgive our enemies, and what it means to lay down our lives for others. Paul tells the Ephesians, walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and gave Himself up for us. And so knowledge of how He loved us is necessary if we want to walk in love. Listen, in our day, people want to separate knowledge of God's Word from love. You guys know it, you see it. 
Love today is more associated with tolerance and feelings than with truth and righteousness. You're not always going to feel like loving your neighbor. You're not always going to feel like loving that person on the pew beside you or behind you or in front of you. But Christian love is much deeper than feelings, isn't it? If you have true Christian love, you will love even when you don't feel like loving. When you say, man, I don't feel like I can love that person anymore. They're just so hateful, right? They don't ever listen to me when I try to share the gospel with them. Right? They're always, they're always doing something just to get under my skin. I don't feel like loving them anymore. The world tells us that, that the, our feelings is what our love should be based on, but God's Word is telling us that no, our love is based on God's knowledge. And so that's why the world operates. If it feels right, then it's acceptable. If it feels like I shouldn't love this person, then I'll, I won't love them. If it feels like I should love this person, then I'll love them. And if we try to correct someone, then what happens? We get labeled as intolerant and therefore we're unloving. But what I'm saying to you this morning is that love must be tied to truth for it to be truly and distinctly Christian love. Love is not first rooted in your emotions. Love is rooted in the truth of God's Word. And so when it comes to those who are hard to love, and we all have them in our lives... We all know those people who are hard to love. Be reminded that your love for that person should not be rooted in your feelings because sometimes you will not feel like loving them. But the truth of God's Word says you must love them. And you can love them not because of your power to overcome your emotions, but because of the power of God's grace in your life. And so show the grace that you've been given. When the Bible rubs against your preferences, who wins? I mean, be encouraged. What Paul's doing here, this is a prayer, right? Pray for help in loving in a way that honors an accurate view of Christ and His Word. Know Jesus deeply and allow Him to soften our hearts towards others. Man, listen, relationships are complex. Amen? Anybody got any complex relationships in here? Am I the only one? They're, 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 they're complex. Marriages are complex. I mean, not my marriage, it's, you know. <laughs> they are. Even when you've got two believers, man, marriages are complex. Relationships are complex. And here's the thing. God didn't just upload a program into our brains that will cause us to love each other perfectly. And so you know what? There are days when I do not love Alden perfectly. She does great. Every day she does great, right? She's the exception to the rule. <laughs> there are days when we don't love each other perfectly, even in our own marriages. Sometimes we may not even love each other at all in our own marriages. Or at least not show it. Get, uh, become victims of our own emotions. And so what do we do? We pray for wisdom. And we pray that God generously provides, just as James 1.5 tells us that He will provide that wisdom that we so desperately need. Man, the Philippians needed to know Christ's love for the church and how they were to unite together. They needed to know that they, sh they should love by putting the needs of others ahead of their own. And every single church needs to know these foundational theological truths. It's not just the church in Philippi. 
But, but how can love be expressed? Right? This is the question. How can love be expressed in a way that puts the needs of others ahead of the needs of our own? I think verses 10 and 11 as we close this morning give us some indication now of how this happens. Paul's wrapping up his prayer here and we see him move from joy and confidence and love now to fruit. Specifically the kind of fruit he prayerfully expects as a result of the Philippians partnership. Look at verse 10. The first fruit he mentions is being, is, 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 is being able to approve what is excellent. That means that we must be able to choose right from wrong. But get this, I think Paul's taking this one step further. It's not just about choosing right from wrong. It's about being able to choose good from best. I know churches that have closed their doors because they settled for what was good instead of what was best. For most of you, most of the time, not all the time for any of us, it's easy to choose right from wrong it gets a little bit more difficult when we talk about choosing what's good for what's best. Because sometimes what's best for us might not be comfortable for us. Sometimes what's best for the church might not be easy for the church. Sometimes it's good and it's comfortable and it's familiar and so we do it. Yet we do it at the cost of what's best. But then Paul, he moves from choosing what is excellent to being sincere and without offense, right? Or to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It's a reference to the second coming. What's being suggested here is that, the ones, that one's life ought to be able to be held up to the light and still be found without blemish. Man, you ought to be able to be held up to the light of Jesus and be found without blemish as we are, are choosing what is excellent. Verse 11, Paul progresses again, this time to the fruit of righteousness. But of course, he, he's faithful again to ground everything in Christ, right? So he's reminding the Philippians right here in verse 11, excuse me, that righteousness can only be found in one place. It can only be found in Christ. And so how do you know right from wrong? How do you know good from best? Paul says, being in Christ. How do you become pure and blameless? Being in Christ. How do you bear the fruit of righteousness? Being in Christ. It's a consistent theme through this greeting. But finally, look at the last result when we cooperate together in Christ. It will result in the glory and praise of God. Why is Paul praying all of these things? It's for the fame and the renown of his God. He ends with his ultimate goal, the glory and praise of God. And so this doxology, as it were, concludes not just with this prayer, but also this entire opening section. It includes thanksgiving, right? And Paul opened by thanking God, expressing his deep affection for the Philippians, and now he closes with the reason for it all, that God may be glorified. There is no higher purpose in this life than to glorify God. You don't glorify God in order to do something else. The end goal is glorifying God. This goal is consistent with Paul's prayers elsewhere for God to be glorified in Ephesians 3 and 2 Thessalonians 1. Right? It's, it's, it's also consistent with the Lord's Prayer. Right? How does Jesus begin the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus taught us to pray with this God-centered vision. And so this longing to see God's name made great is present throughout all of Scripture, not just in Paul's letter, it's not just in the Gospels, but even in the Old Testament. We see Hezekiah praying in 2 Kings, Now, Lord our God, 
Please save us from His hand, speaking of the King, so that all the kingdoms of the earth, listen, may know that You are the Lord God, You alone. That's why He wants His people saved from the violent hand of the King. So that all the nations, so that all people would know that God is God. And so our prayer this morning is is that God would be glorified in us that He would be glorified in His people and for God to make His glory known through us to the nations, that God would work His grace out in our lives. So if you're here this morning and God is not working His grace out in your life, the only way God can work His grace out in your life is if you have a relationship with Jesus. And you may have a relationship with Jesus, but it may have just grown stale. And the reason it's grown stale is because you've become distracted by other things and God's grace is not being worked out the way it ought to be worked out in your life and you're lacking peace, you're lacking joy, and you're lacking production for the sake of the gospel. And so if that's you this morning, I invite you as we stand together and as Rebecca comes, maybe for the very first time just fall at the feet of Jesus Invite His grace into your life or, or maybe just as a believer who's become distracted, who's allowed your view of everything in this world to become distorted, just fall on your face before God and say, God, please cleanse me of all unrighteousness that Your grace may work in my life. As we pray together, allow yourself to be honest with who you are what is lacking in your life, areas where grace is not existent. And instead of looking to someone else, instead of looking to a career or a house or a family member, a spouse, to find peace, to find satisfaction, turn your eyes back on Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful for Your Word. We're so thankful for Your work. And just as Paul has prayed in this introduction to the Philippians, Lord, We are so incredibly grateful for Your grace, knowing that it's You who has begun a good work in us. And it's You who will bring that work to completion. And so for anyone here this morning who is yet to allow You to begin that good work in them, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day that they would turn to Your Son Jesus and experience the grace and the peace that only He could offer. But for those who are here who have experienced the grace of Your Son Jesus, but have become distracted, have been enticed away from the grace that's offered in the truth of Your Word to the lies of this world. May this be the moment that we return to the work that You have called us to. And may we have confidence that You will complete the work that You have begun. And we ask all of this in the name of Your Son Jesus. Amen.